Somebody made a big mistake when I was in high school. This was in grade 10, and a friend of mine was going to the Ontario-wide business competition. So there was this event held in Toronto, and students from all over Ontario would go in and compete for business things, accounting, finance, human resources, and so on and so forth. My friend said to me, hey, Sawyer, you should come out to this Ontario business competition because we can hang out for the weekend at this hotel and conference center. It'll be really fun. I'd never taken a business course in my life. And I said, sure, why not? So he went to the, our high school's business professor, the head of the team of these business people. He said, can Sawyer come and compete in the Ontario business competitions? He said, sure. We'll put him in the marketing competition. So we go down to the big city, Toronto, and I get given a stack of papers and they say, here's your case study. There's this new, co uh, this new company and they're unveiling a new product, a new franchise. You need to make a marketing campaign for them. And so all the other marketing competition students are working, 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 making notes and a presentation. I kind of just sat in the hallway thought about things. And then I went in and I had to pitch my campaign to this panel of marketing professionals. And right away, I was eliminated from the Ontario business competition. This was crazy. I, I should not have been there. This is like sending in someone to the Olympics for a sport they've never played. I did not belong there and I was eliminated right away. Not too long after, someone else made a bad decision that involved me. A friend of mine said, hey Sawyer, different friend, there's this big business conference happening in Toronto. Tickets are hundreds of dollars. Uh, I've got one. Do you want it? You can go. And I said, sure. So I go down to Toronto again. And it turns out this is not a business conference. This is an event being held by the government of Canada for business owners, big multinational business companies. There are millionaires and billionaires and politicians and Sawyer. And so they're trying to do these networking events and people would come up to me and say, oh, so what do you do? And I would tell them, well, I'm a student. And they would do this. They would just turn and walk away. They wouldn't say another word. And I thought, okay, I really got to present myself better. So they, people would come up and say, what do you do? And I would make it very dramatic and mysterious. I would say, what do I do? Well, I, I read books and I write, I write papers and they would go, oh my word, wow, tell me more, okay, but <laughs> I did not belong here. You would look, politicians, billionaires, Sawyer, you know, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things is broke, but I knew right away, I do not belong here. What am I doing here? And have you ever, have you ever been in a situation like this, right, where you get a job and you walk in and you think, uh, I don't know if I'm qualified for this. Or maybe you want to get deep with this. You can expand this. Do you ever wonder this about yourself and your life in general? Do you wonder if you're good enough as a person? Do you ever wonder or worry if people find you impressive or if you're ever going to do anything great with your life? Do you worry that you didn't do well enough in school so you can't get a great job so now you can't really do anything so you're hoping that your kids will do something great with their lives because for you that ship has sailed. There's actually many records still available today of genealogies from the ancient world. And the genealogy was basically a family tree. It outlined your heritage and there was a lot of pride in your ancestry and where you came from. Some cultures though only laid this out through the men in the family tree. So it would say, Bob, son of Steve, Steve, son of Chuck, 
Chuck, son of Dale, Dale, son of Rick, Rick, son of Daryl, and so on and so forth. You get the idea, right? Kind of dry stuff. There's something very interesting if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus. Because if you start reading it, this is the, the beginning of Matthew, it lists the, the males and the genealogy, Dale, son of Bob, Bob, son of Rick, Rick, son of Steve, you know how it goes. But if you look closely, some outsiders are actually snuck in. There's some women in the genealogy. Five women are actually listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And to make this more interesting, to make it more scandalous, some of these women, they're not even Jewish. They're from outside of the, the people of God. They're not Israelites at all. Some of them are from people groups that were considered to be the enemies of the people of God. And it's not like these people were of high status, big influence, powerful people, not at all. These people were kind of scandalous. These people were the lowest of the low. So there's this question, why are these women in here? Why are these women used to prepare the way for the coming of Christ? Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a woman uh, with no prospects. Mary was a teenage girl with a compromised reputation. Why would God use these people to pave the way for Christmas? And so that's what we are looking at during this Advent season. We're studying the women of the genealogy of Jesus. There's five women that are listed, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. We're only looking at three during this time, but we're gonna see how God steps in to these broken spaces and transforms imperfect people, how he redeems and dignifies the discarded and the lost and the downtrodden, and how also God steps into our brokenness, to our places of longing, and how he redeems all things us included. So today we're going to be looking at one of these women in the genealogy of Christ. We're going to be looking at the person of Rahab. And to do so, would you turn to the book of Joshua chapter 2. This will actually be really helpful to have the whole thing in front of you. As you do so, let me give you a little bit of background of what's happened here so far. If you remember anything about the story of Israel, God looks around at the world, thinks, mm, everything is bad and everyone is bad. All I see are bad places and bad guys. I want to make this better. I'm going to start with you. So he picks a guy. His name is Abram, becomes Abraham. And he says to him, hey, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. If you put your faith in me and your trust in me, I'm going to give you a son. From him will come a great nation and that nation will provide a blessing that will bless the whole world. And I'm even going to give you land. And you can trace that genealogy all the way to Jesus. Jesus is this blessing for all of the nations. Okay, but let's go back. So God makes this covenant with uh, Abraham and he, Abraham and his wife Sarah, have their son Isaac. And from Isaac comes Israel. And Israel becomes enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved, they're oppressed there. So God sends his servant Moses to liberate Israel from Egypt. They come out of Egypt. God says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey. And they come to the edge of the promised land. And uh, Moses, they send in 12 spies to look at this land that God has said he will deliver to them. 12 spies go in for 40 days. And they come back and 10 of the 12 spies say, no way, we can't take this place. The people are huge. It's crazy. They will absolutely destroy us. Two of the spies said, no, God said he's going to give us this place. I say we go in there and our enemies will be delivered to us by God's hand. 
However, the people of Israel, they didn't listen to the two, they listened to the ten. They heard these ten spies saying, the people in there are huge, they're going to destroy us, and they start to lose heart. And they say, why, why are we out here? God just brought us out here to die. We should have stayed in Egypt. It was better there. They hadn't been gone very long at all, and they were already wishing to be back in captivity. They had a Stockholm syndrome with their captors. And this is what happens. God says, hey, you, you, liked, you liked Egypt so much, you don't want to go in here? Fine. You get to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then you get to try going back into this promised land again. Maybe that'll change your attitude. How about you take a 40-year time out? And so they wander for 40 years. Moses passes away. And Joshua is now the new leader of God's people. Joshua was one of the two spies who said, let's go into this promised land. Okay, so now we're in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the new leader of God's people. And their time is up. Time out is over. 40 years in the wilderness. And they're coming again, once again, to take hold of God's promise for them, of this land. This is what's happening in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 talks about their preparation for entry. Joshua chapter 2 talks about Rahab. And then Joshua chapter 3 is the beginning of their entry. So Joshua chapter 2 is a little bit of a detour in the narrative. So let's see what happens here in Joshua chapter 2. Let's begin reading together in verse 1. And Joshua... The son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim. I practiced, practiced that. Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So he's sending in two spies. Look at this land of Canaan and especially this city, Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. No, 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 no. They spent 40 years waiting to go into this place. They send in two spies. All right, guys, it's finally time to do it. And the first thing they do is they go into the home of a prostitute. I can just imagine the Israelites and they're, they're watching the two spies. In my head, this didn't happen. There's one guy, one guy with a telescope and he's saying, yep, yeah, they're in, they're in, hooray, they're in, they're in. And I, oh, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, no, it's fine. No, don't tell Joshua. Uh, just detour, brief, brief detour. Okay, so there's some tension in this story already. We're looking for God's people to go for victory and the spies take a detour into the house of a prostitute. This doesn't look good. This doesn't look good for the spies. This doesn't look good for Israel's prospect of taking the land. The tension starts to build in this narrative. Let's continue on. Verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So now there's more tension. The king hears about their mission. The spies aren't being very sneaky. The ruse is up. The king is aware of their presence and he issues an edict and a commandment to capture them, to find them. Verse 3, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. At this point, all that we know about Rahab is that she's a Gentile prostitute in a wicked city. So uh, there's probably threefold reasons for the original readers not to like Rahab. She's a prostitute, not well thought of in the culture at that time. I don't think anything's changed to today. It's also not a well-respected position. So she's a prostitute in a wicked city in a land of God's enemies. Okay, 
We'll learn later that his home was actually part of the wall of the city, so her home was very visible to the people coming in and the people who were living there, to visitors and the residents as well. And what happens next is very surprising. Let's keep reading. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, she's talking to the the guards, the king's people that are sent, True! The men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she'd laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Rahab doesn't rat them out, the two spies, and she sends the guards, the king's men, on a wild chase. The skitty, the, the skitty gates, the city gates close for the night, and now the spies are locked into the city, with the king searching after them in the home of a prostitute. This is very, very tense. There's a lot of tension in this story. What's going to happen next? How are these people going to escape? What does this mean for Israel? Are they still going to be able to take over this city? Let's continue reading. And what's Rahab's role in all this? Let's keep reading. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That's an incredible thing to hear. She already knows about their God. She's heard about him and about all these things that have been happening. For we've heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Look at this profession on her part. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Look at her ask. And what do the men say? And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. These are the same enemies that the Israelites were scared of 40 years ago. But it's funny to see that the people whom they feared actually feared them in the first place. And so if you continue reading on, uh, they agree to these conditions of Rahab. They say, no problem, You you can join our side now. And when the attack is coming, when the time has come, we want you to hang a scarlet cord, a thread, a red scarlet cord or thread from the window of your home. That way we'll know this is your home and your family will be spared. She agrees. She lowers a rope from her window. The spies escape because her home is in the wall of the city. They escape out the other side and they go back to Israel, to God's people in the first place. What a turn of events. There's a lot of things going on here. There's warfare and spying and prostitution and conquests of the king's men and signals and destruction. With all these things going on, there's two parts that stand out the most, that resonate the most, that we can focus on today. Perhaps the two themes, the two motifs of this passage are, the first being God's mercy. In the face of coming judgment, 
God's warnings are always very, very clear. Here's, here's a couple examples. Just, just scattered throughout this chapter and the book as a whole are countless examples of God's mercy. So in verse one, it says that Israel, Joshua sent in two spies to the land. But it's strange because these spies don't actually do any spying, right? When Israel comes into Jericho, there's no real information about the city that was gathered by the spies that they used. So this, this doesn't seem to be an effective mission of spying. However, it looks like the spies are actually doing more of a evangelistic mission in this way. The wording that is used is that Joshua instructs them to look over the land. We see the same term, the same phrase used in 2 Samuel 15.10, where this term is used to describe the passing of information. So there's good reason to think that these spies are actually giving information rather than taking information. And so if you kind of accept this reading, then it makes sense of their purpose in the chapter. It's also stressed in chapter two that in God's judgment, God is still offering salvation, security from the wrath that is to come to Rahab and her family. This also happens with Noah and the ark, with Lot and Sodom, with the firstborn sons and the Passover. In Revelation chapter 11, it said that two witnesses are gonna come and witness to all who God is and all that he does before the final judgment is to come. So there's this long pattern before Joshua and after of God giving instance after instance, an example after example, an opportunity after opportunity for people to turn to him and be safe from the judgment that is to come. It's really easy to look at this passage of conquest and view it as some barbaric ancient turn of events. Some Christians look at this passage and find it morally repugnant. And how do you deal with this, this violence of the Old Testament? Some Christians, would say that perhaps this isn't really an inspired part of the Bible. Perhaps God didn't really command this. This is just a wicked people doing wicked things in God's name. Might I humbly and gently suggest that that is not the way of wisdom. That's not a wise way to encounter these difficult passages in the Bible. Why? Because if we view God's word as actually holy, and authoritative and inerrant and divinely inspired, then anytime we encounter something that bothers us, the problem is probably with us and not with God's word itself. So this is not a helpful posture to approach. So this isn't, this isn't the point of the sermon. Give me two minutes and I wanna show you why this passage may not be as morally repugnant to our modern sensibilities as it may appear on first encounter. When you study the book of Joshua as a whole and the conquest and God's people coming into Canaan and the destruction that happens there, it seems a lot more like God is attacking an evil ideology. He's coming after an ideology than coming after a person. This is kind of like in World War II, the allied forces wanted to completely destroy the regime of Nazism, but they weren't going out of their way to destroy every single German person. Okay, look at Leviticus 18. It's listed between verse 4 and 24. All of the wicked things that the Canaanites were doing. They were engaged in strange sexual acts of taboo like bestiality and incest. But perhaps the worst of all, they were engaged in worshiping false demon idols and were sacrificing children to these idols in the first place. 
Second, Jericho itself isn't a city. It's more of a military outpost. And when God is giving instructions to Israel on how to take over this land, there's geographical boundaries. So you can go here, no farther. You can't touch these tribes. You can't touch these people groups. And it has to happen within this time. So it was actually kind of spread out. Israel also had to offer terms of peace to these cities. And it says in Joshua chapter eleven nineteen that this offer was made consistently even to Jericho and it was refused. Here, let's read this. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites and the, and the inhabitants of Gideon. So there's example after example. And when these people go in, it's not really extinction that's happening. It's, it's a driving out from this place. So this looks more like exile than genocide in this case. Uh, in fact, only three fortresses were totally destroyed in the land of Canaan. There's Jericho, Hazor, that's how you say it. And the last place is just the letters A-I, I, if that's how you say it that way. If you want to look more into this, the Bible Project does a really good job. But even in the language that's used to describe the conquest that takes place, it was recorded with the conventions of ancient battle narratives. So when it says in Joshua that in these cities, every single person was destroyed, but a couple chapters later, it talks about inhabitants still being in the city. So everyone was destroyed, yet there were still people there. Is this a contradiction? No, it's the language that is used. It's like how we say, if a sports team got slaughtered last night, the players are still alive and they're still well, they're still well paid, but we're using language to show how complete and utterly decisive the victory was of this people group. Okay, so that's a couple examples right there. So this conquest of Canaan may not be as morally repugnant as it appears in the first service. There's actually good reason to assume that it's saturated with God's mercy. Why? God always gives warnings. God wants his people to have their inheritance and he gives Jericho fair warning. And in the new kingdom of heaven, he's gonna offer his people this inheritance and he will always give fair warning. God provides a warning and God provides a way. God's message of judgment always includes an offer of mercy. God extends mercy to Canaan. God extends mercy to Jericho. God extends mercy to Rahab and God extends mercy to you. When God delivered his people in Egypt, he saved them from judgment by the blood of the lamb. When God delivered his people in Jericho, he saved them from judgment by the scarlet cord that was hung from the window. And when God delivers his people today, he saves them from judgment by the blood of Jesus. So the question is this, how will you respond to God's mercy, to God's gift, this great gift of mercy, this gift of his son as well? In response to God's mercy, we see this second component of Joshua chapter 2. The second component of this is Rahab's faith. Rahab, the person of Rahab, uh, she is a prostitute in a wicked city. So just imagine for a moment what her daily life would look like, the horrible mistreatment that she would receive. You can imagine for a moment the horrible events of her life that would have led to her being in this position because there's no girl who says when she's little that this is what she wants to grow up and be when she gets older. Her home is in the wall of the city, so everyone can see her coming in and coming out. Many people looking down on her. I'm sure she was the topic of gossip every day. Did you see who came out of Rahab's home today? And so in the midst of all this, Rahab, along with the citizens of her city, the people in Jericho, they begin to hear about the God of Israel. 
They hear how God delivers his people from their oppression and their slavery. And you can imagine Rahab just hearing this and thinking, oh, that I would have a God who would deliver me from these circumstances. And not only a God that delivers them from Egypt, but a God who comes to give them an inheritance and a place to be, a place with communion with God, a land flowing with milk and honey. And she says, oh, that I could be taken from these circumstances and be given a new life. And as she's in the midst of this, guess what happens? Israel and God's people show up at her door. And what does she do in the face of this? Rahab acts. Rahab responds to this extension of God's mercy. She says she wants to join them. She wants to join on God's great mission. And look how, <laughs> look how God begins to use her right away. One of the things that I'm sure Rahab had to learn in her profession was the art of discretion. And right away, she uses discretion to subtly send the king's men on a wild goose chase as they chase after the men. And then what happens? Rahab lowers the spies out of the window. And I'm sure that is not the first time she had to sneak a man out of the window of her home. And look how God begins to use even all of these little bits of her past. He begins to redeem all elements of her past right away, as soon as she joins him. Rahab puts her trust in God and decides to act on it right away. This is how James describes this many, many centuries later. James 2, 25 to 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. See how they're referred to as messengers, bringers of a message. For as the body apart from the spirit is also dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The Bible uses Rahab as a model of faith. Rahab gets honorable mention in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith hall of fame. And it's talking about Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Moses. And Rahab is put right in the middle with all of them as an example of a person who receives God's mercy and responds with powerful faith. An example for us all, Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute. God works through whoever he wants to work through. We actually see in Jesus a, a pattern of him coming to the humble and the lowly and the losers in his society that he was in. We see Jesus offering grace and mercy to the woman caught in adultery. There's the prostitute who comes and pours perfume on his feet and wipes her feet with his hair in the first place. We even see in the book of Hosea, God's relationship to his people is described through the relationship of Hosea and his wife, who repeatedly keeps going back and prostituting herself out to people that don't love her, but who use her and abuse her. So according to God's word, we are Rahab on both sides. And you may take offense to that, but look at this fact, that before God came to us, we were loving all of the wrong things, going to people for love who did not love us, who used us and abused us. And God comes to us in our state and offers us mercy. And we had nothing that we could offer God. Look, look at my skill set. Hey, God, um, I can do card tricks. I can edit philosophy papers and I can stack hay bales. 
I can't help you with your marketing plan. That's all I've got to offer. That's all I've got to offer. Rahab had nothing to offer except for her faith. And look at this. God comes to us and God offers us mercy, just as we saw him offering the people of Jericho mercy. Even more than that, he offers us love. And Rahab responds with faith, an act of faith. Faith must be acted on, as James said. If it's not acted on, it's dead. It's not that works are the thing that saves you. You're saved by faith. But if there's no fruit, there's no root. Faith is active, and something that is active has life. Faith has legs. You could put it that way. And look at this. Look at Rahab's faith. When she acted in trust and when she acted in faith, was she a perfect person? Did God wait for Rahab to clean herself up before he would use her? No, not at all. God's love isn't the reward for change. It's the resource for change. Love isn't a prize. Love is a gift. Forgiveness isn't a prize. It's a gift. And there's a message in this story of Rahab for the humble amongst us and the proud amongst us. Let's start with the humble. In the story of Rahab, we see this. Your past is not what defines you. Your faith is what defines you. Child of God, listen to me. Hear me out. God does not see you as dirty and as used. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as wool. God doesn't view you based upon what you did in your past. You are declared righteous in God's eyes because of your faith in Jesus. There are no second-rate saints in the kingdom of heaven. There are no discounted souls in the kingdom of heaven. You are declared pure in God's eyes. You're not defined by your past. You are defined by your faith. We get to heaven, and when we meet Rahab in heaven, we're not going to be knowing her as Rahab the prostitute. We will know her as Rahab the righteous. She was declared pure in God's eyes because of her faith, just like you are declared pure in God's eyes because of your faith. So for those of you watching today who don't know Jesus, do you feel broken? Do you feel discarded? Do you feel used? Do you feel like you won't be good enough? Like you won't measure up? Do you feel like Rahab? Do you feel trapped in your circumstances? Do you long for deliverance? Do you long to be set free? Do you long for a new life in this way? Do you hear about God delivering his people? Do you hear about him giving them new life? And do you wish that God would just knock on your door? Well, guess what? Today you've heard about God's extension of mercy, about the power of faith, and how we can be washed clean by our faith in Christ. My question for you today is this. How will you respond today? You've seen God's mercy. You've seen Rahab's faith. How will you respond? And for you today that have been walking with God for a while, when we look at the life of Rahab, we see an active, powerful faith. And the question for you today is this, where do you need to be active in your faith? She's used as a proof 
in the, uh, in the book of James on how faith has works. Faith is an act of trust. Where are you not responding to where God's leading you in an act of trust today? I'm going to let you sit in that for just a second. I'm sure it comes to mind right away. Where are we not being faithful? Where are we not acting in trust? One more question for all of Bayview as a whole, as a church, as Bayview Glen. How would we respond to Rahab today? If a woman not walking in purity, if a woman looked down upon culturally and socially, came and joined us for worship at Bayview Glen, how would we respond? Would we be reminding her of God's mercy, God's love? Or would we be meeting her with the judgment of man? May that not be so. So today we've seen that Rahab is included in the genealogy of Jesus to tell us this. It's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. It's not who we were before Christ that matters. It's who we are after Christ. That's what matters. Remember Rahab. Remember that Rahab had nothing to offer except her faith. And that's all she needed to respond to God's mercy. And would we be a place, a people modeled by this, by the faith of Rahab and as people who proclaim God's mercy to all of the discarded and disfranchised and lonely people year round, but especially during this Advent season.